and now let me uh, welcome up uh, Dr. Christopher Yuan, who has taught at Moody Bible Institute for the last 10 years. Uh, he went, he's a graduate of Moody um, in 2005 and of Wheaton Gra- College Grad School in 2007, which is where we met. We were students together at grad school and completed his doctorate in, of ministry uh, from Bethel Seminary in 2014, and in addition to teaching uh, the Bible at Moody, he and his family have really a worldwide speaking ministry, uh, speaking on on the Christian faith and sexuality, and so that's taken them to five continents. Um, a lot of it is journaled in the book that he talked about last night briefly at the end, the story they shared. If you want to see the full story, I really encourage you to pick up a copy of, of the memoir that he and his mother wrote. Um, but this morning he's going to be talking to us about what does scripture actually say about these things, uh, texts and hermeneutics. And so, Christopher, would you come on up and uh, teach us, brother? Morning. Uh, your mercies are new. Every morning, we thank you, Lord, that you've called us to yourself and called us to the mission of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. God, we praise you. We thank you for your word, word that is, though ancient, is everlasting and is very relevant even for us today. We love you, God, and we ask this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. The Bible is wrong. That's what we hear and have heard probably for several decades now. Bible's a good book, but there's errors in it. Some might say there's a lot of errors. Some might say there's not that many errors. But particularly when it comes to these passages that touch on same-sex relationships, um, people who would say that call themselves Christians will say, well, it's just wrong in those places. So that's kind of the approach for mainline denominations and for more liberal Christians. But what we find recently are people who will disagree with that. They say, no, I don't think that the Bible has errors. It's just been misinterpreted. So it's definitely condemning something. So it's right. It's, and they would say they have a high view of scripture, but what they would generally say, it's, it's not a universal condemnation. It's not condemning all same-sex relationships, and they would actually argue that it's, that they would say it's not condemning monogamous same-sex relationships of adults, consenting adults. So how do people who look at the same book, same Bible, same words, same verses, same chapters, come to such a different conclusion? That's what we're going to look at today. Uh, If you would like a copy of my notes that's here on, um, you can scan the QR code and get my digital copy of my notes there. Um, if you don't know what a QR code is, that's okay. <laughs> my parents have no clue. You can jot down that shortened URL and that will get you to the same place. It'll probably ask you to sign up for Dropbox. You don't have to, but um, you can get that free PDF file. And actually, there's going to be a lot of information that we're going to kind of try to fly through um, and so I, I, I suggest, uh, encourage you to do that. So anyway, so we all look at the same Bible. H- how do people, uh, so we're going to be touching on some of the, some of the approaches of people from the mainline denominations, but generally I'm going to be talking about, uh, this, this growing trend of people who say, I'm an evangelical Christian and I believe that the Bible does not condemn monogamous same-sex relationships. And I'm going to be talking about the way that they would look at Scripture, the way that they approach Scripture, and then I'm going to kind of respond to that. Uh, Like Brandon said, we met at Wheaton College in grad school. Before that, I went to Moody, and while at Moody, um, I actually started out, I was talking with Drew, and I I started out um, as a music major, a music minor, I'm sorry. Um, And one thing I learned right away was that... um, Loving music and being good at music are not exactly the same thing. Uh, I love music, um, and I think I could get around a little bit as a, you know, hobby musician, but uh, I knew that that's not what God was... I I wanted to leave the music to those people that are really gifted, like Drew and his whole family, I hear, are all musicians. Um, So... 
right around sophomore year, uh, a lot of my classmates, guys on my floor, they were a few years ahead of me, and they were taking Greek and Hebrew, and I was like, I was listening to them talk, and about their learning, I was like, I want to do that too. So I took uh, Hebrew and Greek, um, uh, and I loved it. But, you know, the funny thing is you take a couple years of any language, and you're just barely scratching the surface. So I went on and, and chose this program at Wheaton where I met Brandon, where we were able to do both Hebrew and Greek. Because a lot of times when you go off to grad school, you have to choose one or the other. And I can't, you know, I mean, parents, when you have two kids, you like, you have to choose one or the other. It's like, what do I, what do, I do? I, I can't choose. So I decided I'm, I wanted to find a program that does both at the same time. And it was an amazing program that it was, it was really phenomenal. Um, but it was interesting because all my classmates... They either wanted to be pastors like Brandon or they wanted to go on to academia, which I really didn't feel called to do, which is so funny why I'm now teaching in Moody. That's never say never, right? God always has a sense of humor. Uh, But honestly, I I still don't necessarily feel called primarily to academia. Um, I knew I was called to address this topic of homosexuality, but I didn't know why. I mean, why am I doing biblical languages? And this is kind of, I felt like there was a bit of a disconnect, but God didn't see any disconnect. And what we find today is so many people who um, are now, you know, saying, I'm gay, I'm Christian, and, and they're coming up with all these, you know, arguments that sound fairly reasonable. And they're, they're using Greek and Hebrew and, and background and context. And so how do you handle that? Um, and it's just amazing how God in his wisdom uh, prepared me to have some handle with biblical languages and exegesis and context, literary context, historical context, to be able to engage with others uh, who are engaging on these texts. So it's amazing what God can do. So those of you guys that are kids and going off to college and you have no idea what you're going to do, you know what, just go through the doors that God has for you and, and just God can still use it. I love how God does that. But I also want to remind you that uh, the information that I'm presenting for you, don't think about this as ammunition in your belt. Because I've really rarely met anyone who has debated into the kingdom. I haven't met that yet. I, you know, you don't come to someone and give them some crafty argument and, you know, you know, okay, uncle, you know, you know how you, you know, okay, I give in. No, it's, it's almost always through relationship. As a matter of fact, I believe that the gospel is best shared in relationship. So this isn't for those people that we might disagree with. Actually, I think this is for us. Because I think we'd be surprised at how many people among us, among our evangelical friends, who are uncertain. I just don't know. I, you know, I've, I've heard some of these understandings. And, and hasn't the church been wrong on different, you know, things and in their interpretations? So, you know... Honestly, this is for us, even for our youth and young adults. So before we jump into these different texts, um, it's important that we address something, uh, you know, as we step back, the method. Hermeneutics, if you ever heard this word, it's a big word, but it's basically the principles of interpretation. And this applies to any piece of literature, uh, English literature, French literature, if you've studied anything at at a graduate level, um, you know, any piece of literature, you would have understood this term, principles of interpretation. In seminary, we learned the definition for this to be the science and art of biblical interpretation. It's a science because there's a method to it, but it's, all, it's an art because it's more than just step-by-step a formula. There's, I mean, it, it takes, there's a skill to it, um, and also probably the most important thing is that it's the Holy Spirit that guides us into truth. That's one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, guides us into truth. And I think that's probably the most important aspect of hermeneutics, because without that, um, you are missing probably the most important aspect of biblical, interpre- uh, biblical interpretation. So those of us who hold to a biblical view of sexuality, and of course that can be debated, and so often it's called a traditional view of sexuality, that God has reserved husband and wife for marriage, um, or God has reserved sex for husband and wife in marriage. Anything outside of that is not something that God would bless. Those of us who hold to this biblical view, the traditional view of sexuality, we have, in a sense, a prioritization of our principles of interpretation. We're at the very, very top 
is God's word. And uh, this is you know, probably a little bit simplified, but uh, it's to make a point. So it's not only saying that God's word has no errors, it's inerrant, it's, all, it's, it's infallible, it's unfailing, uh, but it's also the final word on faith and ethics. And so when we realize that, we, we recognize that, uh, you know, that, that our goal when we, when we do interpretation is not so much, you know, well, what do you think about it? But what we want to get at is, what was the author's, the original author's intent? What, what was going on, you know, in Paul's mind when he was writing Romans? What was going on around the time uh, that Paul wrote this book? Because those things can be important uh, as, as he was also relaying something to the church at Rome. So all these things are very important. We want to get back at what was the original intent. Um, so to do that, we would do uh, what we call grammatical historical exegesis. Exegesis means you get meaning out of the text. When I entered into the program at, at Wheaton, my mom's like, why do you have to exit Jesus? I mean, what, what, what does, what, I thought Jesus is good, right? You know, you don't want to exit Jesus, no. Exegesis, ex, uh, that prefix means out. You want to, in a sense, get the meaning out of the text, because we want to get the author's meaning out of the text. We don't want to put our meaning into the text. The opposite, of that, that's all called eisegesis. So we do grammatical historical exegesis. We look at the grammar, look at the syntax. We look at uh, kind of word meanings, figures of speech. We also look at context, and that's not just literary context, but also historical context, looking at uh, backgrounds, Jewish backgrounds, ancient Norwegian backgrounds, Greco-Roman backgrounds. Um, but it's not just the kind of what with the typical the grammatical historical exegesis. I, I think that's kind of um, pretty standard. What I think is probably the key thing that's missing for those who get the biblical, the correct interpretation and don't come up with the correct interpretation is they miss this aspect, the canonical contextual exegesis, where we look at this verse, not just in light of what's going on in the rest of the book and the paragraphs before and after, and not just in light of the historical context of the time that it was in which it was written, but we read it in light of all 66 books of the Bible. In other words, one text can mean many things. I think we would all admit to that. So which one is it? Well, because of context, that helps us, but because we read it in light of the the canon, all 66 books of the Bible, that we know that the 66 books of the Bible are not just disjointed books. They're not just books separate from one another, that they all have their own meaning and they're not connected. We believe that not just is this book written by human beings, but it's also written by God himself. That's the orthodox doctrine of inspiration. God is the author of this book. He moved, the Holy Spirit moved in human beings to record his word. So therefore, if God is the author, then all these 66 books, they're, they're strung together. There's, there's, there's themes that go throughout, and so they're joined, they're, they're, they're united in one, creating one message. So we have to read it as such, because if we notice, when you look at any passage, oftentimes a biblical writer will actually quote from a previous biblical writer, from the Old Testament or even from the New Testament, and though sometimes the author might not quote an entire portion, the biblical writer might allude to a passage previously in the Torah or uh, another prophet in the Old Testament. And then using these key words, we call that intertextuality. So there's, if you look at the Bible, there's like, there's connecting points all over the place. And oftentimes we miss that. And because we're not like the Jewish people in the first century who memorized the Torah and knew the, the Hebrew Bible very well, they would catch these things. When Paul would be writing and saying things, they'd be like, oh, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about Leviticus, such and such, or he's referring back to Deuteronomy. And, the, and Paul doesn't have to kind of just quote everything or just say, I'm quoting from here. He just used key words because when you, we read things canonically, that puts guardrails on our hermeneutics. When you don't have 
and you, and you don't read things in light of all 66 books of the Bible, when you don't catch the intertextualities, the allusions, well, your, your interpretation can go anywhere, and you could go really off the rails. And I'm going to be showing this over and over in almost all of these passages where there are intertextual echoes that if you catch them, you will come, the, you, the guardrails will be in place, and you won't go off with incorrect interpretation. Canonical contextual exegesis. So canonical, that's a key part. Um, then underneath that, we have reason and science. And, and I don't believe that somehow reason and science contradict God's word. You know, we have reason and science and nature. You know, that's general revelation. General revelation actually is going to coincide and agree with uh, God's special revelation, God's word. Then we have experience. And experience, sometimes as evangelicals, we really, really want to downplay that. And, and that's Partially because we know that our, 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 our experience can bias our understanding of Scripture. But experience can sometimes be good. It can help us uh, sometimes fill in places uh, because, because of our own experience. If you're a recent widow and you read those passages in the Old Testament, well, those passages will really mean something to you because it's like that's speaking to you. But it's important that we realize that there's a limit to how much we want to allow our experience to affect our interpretation and our hermeneutics because it can twist and distort it and bias it. Now, those who hold not to a biblical view of sexuality, you know, it's often called a progressive view of sexuality. I don't really like that term either. And actually, I didn't like the term traditional because traditions are basically man-made and I would much rather follow the Bible than man-made traditions. Um, but anyway, that's the term that's, that's given, so I'll, I'll just put that up there, even though I much prefer biblical, and of course that can be argued. Now, the other view, which is not the against kind of the biblical view of sexuality, that God would bless any type of monogamous, monogamous relationship, whether it's same sex or opposite sex, it's often called the progressive view. And, and you know, I'm, I, I, I love language, and because I love language, um, I, I know that words matter, and I, you know, kind of each word that, I, that we use, I think, needs to be critiqued. And when I look at the word progressive, I don't like that term, and, and not because, it, it's, because of its association with politics. I don't like that term because it's not accurate. Progressive means moving forward, becoming better, not going backwards. Because if you go backwards, then that's kind of traditional, in a sense. I mean, that's, that's the assertion that's made. Um, and if we look at history, if we go back thousands of years into the Greco-Roman times, um, same-sex relationships was fairly common. If we go back even a few more thousand years into the ancient Near Eastern world, you'll see that all the pagan nations around Israel, same-sex relationships was very common. So progressive actually won't be, isn't really accurate, maybe regressive. But that's a bit snarky, so I'm not going to go with that. It's accurate, but snarky. Um, revisionist is kind of the, a, a term that's, that's generally used. It's revising what has really been unanimous for the past couple thousand years of the church and also several more thousand years of Jewish tradition. I mean, it's been unanimous. Now, those who hold a revisionist view that same-sex relationships are blessed, opposite-sex relationships, you know, same-sex relationships are blessed just as opposite-sex relationships are, um, they have what you find is a uh, inverted hermeneutics. No longer is scripture at the very top. What you find is experience. Almost never have I heard someone who moved from a biblical view of sexuality to a revisionist view whose story didn't go something like this. My son is gay, or my best friend is gay, and they love Jesus, or I'm gay. How could this be wrong? What you find is it's their experience that is driving their hermeneutics. That's dangerous. Anytime you allow that to happen, you're more than likely going to end up with a misinterpretation. Underneath that is reason and science. Now, an argument that, I, that you often hear is when people say, well, we have, we have done so much research and so much study on this concept of sexual orientation. And uh, we know that it's innate, it's fixed, which, by the way, it's not, we haven't proven that yet. If you look at the most recent research by secular feminist queer scholars, 
uh, specifically Lisa Diamond. If you have any time, if you're interested in that, read Lisa Diamond's stuff. It's fascinating. And she's basically saying all this stuff saying that it's fixed and innate. That's not what the data is showing. Um, but uh, so, you know, all this, all that we know about sexual orientation, this concept, it's, 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 and, and they've kind of created sexual orientation to be this concept of personhood, which that hasn't been proven. I mean, how do you prove that? Um, and, uh, but anyway, this concept of sexual orientation, um, Paul and Moses didn't have that in mind. You know, they were in a sense ignorant. They, they didn't, they didn't know that. And so therefore, uh, the Bible isn't addressing sexual orientation. That's, that's kind of the, the assertion that's made. So there's a few problems with that. First of all, when people say that, uh, it really reveals their misunderstanding of the doctrine of inspiration. That a text is only written by a human author. Kind of just neglecting the reality that God uh, is the one that moved in the biblical writers and, and the doctrine of inspiration, uh, that scripture is written by God. It's also written by the uh, hand of human beings as well. So it's one thing to say that Paul or Moses might not have understood something, but it's something completely different to say that God didn't understand the modern concept that we have today of sexual orientation. Um, and let's just say that, you know, just for argument's sake, that Moses or Paul, you know, didn't have in mind this concept of sexual orientation. But I definitely know that Paul certainly would have had in mind the concept of a sinful orientation. And I think that's much more applicable to what we're discussing today. Um, then at the very bottom, we have Scripture. And people who would hold to this revisionist view, they would still call themselves evangelicals. They would still uh, say, I have a high view of Scripture. But let me tell you, just having saying you have a high view of Scripture doesn't mean that you will have the correct interpretation. Saying you have a high view of Scripture doesn't guarantee that you have a high Bible IQ. So let's move on and, and look at the different texts. And we're going to start actually with the Old Testament, with Genesis. And before we look at these different texts, uh, and if you have your Bibles, you can you know, go, you know, follow with me. Genesis 19. Uh, when we look at these different texts, as particularly the Old Testament passages, uh, it's important for us to realize that there are several things that we need to um, look at any time we look at an Old Testament passage. First of all, what is this passage, uh, what is this passage saying? What does it mean? Second, does this Old Testament passage apply to us today? First, Whenever we're looking at Old Testament passage, we ask, what does it mean? What does it say? Second, does it apply to us today? The sad thing is many Christians have no clue how to answer that second question. And we get caught off guard on our heels when people ask, why do you eat shrimp? Why do you eat pork? I'm assuming that many of you probably here wouldn't know that answer to this because you're under great teaching with with these two pastors. So hopefully you guys know that. But I bet many of your Christian friends don't have a good answer. And if you don't have an answer, you will be caught off guard with many of these arguments. So those are two important questions. And we're going to be answering that second question partially as we go forward. But first, let's look at Genesis 19. Generally speaking, this passage, Genesis 19, this chapter, has been understood that the city of Sodom was destroyed specifically because of the sin of homosexuality. Traditionally, that, that is how it's been understood. Now, I'm going to first present the revisionist interpretations, the misinterpretations, and then I'm going to respond to those second. So I'm, let, me, let me present them all and then respond to it. So how do people look at this passage and say, this is not condemning same-sex relationships? First, they will say it's not condemning same, uh, monogamous same-sex relationships. It's condemning gang rape. And there's a bit of truth to this story. We, this is not a story about people in Sodom and it's not about, you know, a monogamous gay couple and that's why they were condemned. So the story itself is, um, two angels were sent by God to visit Sodom. Uh, they stayed, you know, Lot invited them in his home. They were in the home. Men of Sodom banged on the door, want to have sex with them, etc. But then, uh, the city was destroyed. 
Now, there's a bit of, uh, now, now, how do people kind of say, well, you know, back up this argument about gang rape? During the ancient Near Eastern world, gang rape was actually fairly common, especially in context of hostility and warfare. Uh, the, when there's uh, kind of the victors, uh, they conquered a city. They would take, take the, the men and children and, 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 and women. Uh, they would imprison them, probably put them into slavery, involuntary slavery, and they would uh, often take the men, hold them prisoner, kill them or sell them, whatever, you know, torture them. And through that, they would sometimes do some sex acts on the men, not as a form of arousal for themselves, but as a form of humiliation. I'm showing that I'm in domination over you. So that is a fact. Revisionists say that's what's being condemned here, not a monogamous same-sex relationship. Now, again, I'm going to respond to these in just a moment, but let me first present these. A second mis- uh, misinterpretation or a second assertion that, that is probably the more common one is they'll say that what's being condemned here is the sin of inhospitality. And I, if you haven't heard this before, that you'll be like, what in the world? That's so bizarre. But let me just present it and show you how it can seem very convincing. So a revisionist will say something like this. The word Sodom occurs 27 times outside the book of Genesis. If you look at all 27 times outside the book of Genesis in the Old Testament and the New Testament, never once do you find it uh, specifically same-sex relationships mentioned. In addition, um, when you look specifically at a passage particularly in Ezekiel 16, the prophet says this. Now, this was a sin of your sister Sodom. I mean, being very, very specific, this was a sin of your sister Sodom. What is it? She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So a revisionist will say, tell me, does that sound like homosexuality? No, it doesn't. It looks like inhospitality. Another way that's uh, maybe not as common, this is probably a little bit more from the mainline denominations, they will look at this, uh, the Hebrew word. This is, uh, you know, one of my biblical languages professors, I can't remember if it was at Moody or at Wheaton, uh, said something really interesting about biblical languages. Said, biblical languages, um, it's kind of like underwear. It's good for support, not good to show off. So I'm always really hesitant to bring up biblical languages, uh, but it's good to bring it up when it's being misused, particularly here. So revisionists, uh, or actually it's more of the mainline denomination, kind of really liberal, uh, some of them they'll grasp to this, and it's, it's, and it's a really far-fetched uh, kind of interpretation. But they'll look at the, the Hebrew word in Genesis 19.5 where the men of Sodom banged on Lot's doors and said, bring these men out so we can have sex with them. Literally, it's not that they want to have sex with them. It's uh, we want to know them. So some will say, these men of Sodom didn't really want to have sex with them. They just want to get to know them. Hi, my name's, you know, you know, let's hang out. You know, let's be friends. That's really what they wanted to do. They didn't want to have sex with them. I know it sounds really, really crazy. Uh, but the argument will go something like this. The word in Hebrew for to know is the Hebrew word yada. It occurs, it occurs almost a thousand times in the Old Testament, 943 times. Actually, only 15 times does it actually have the meaning, you know, more than just intellectually know, relationally know, but, you know, only 15 times does it mean to have sex with. So the argument is it's a very seldom used definition that shouldn't be used here. That's, that's the argument. Of course, not a good argument. So let's, let's go back and, and respond, you know, is there any merit to these assertions? Before we do that, we need to look at, well, what's this passage saying? We need to go back. If you flip back to Genesis 13, uh, you will find that that's the first time that Sodom is mentioned. And Genesis 13, 13, uh, actually, this is where Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen are quarreling. They're arguing, and uh, they decide to split up. And, uh, you know, Abram lets his nephew Lot to decide which area he wants to go to. And Lot uh, goes, uh, chose himself, uh, verse 11, the Jordan Valley, uh, Valley. Uh, and then it says they separated from each other, and um, and then it says, uh, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, moved his tent as far as Sodom. That's the end of verse 12. Whenever you f- see that as far as, uh, 
That's a premonition for something that's bad that's, about, that's going to happen. Never do we find anything as far as. That's, that's not a positive thing. Some, I mean, right away, there's something negative, and we actually get that in the next verse. Verse 13, it says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So, I mean, if we get this paragraph, that's like, that's a huge allusion to what's going to happen uh, in just a few more chapters. So, honestly, nothing had to happen in Genesis 19 for the people of Sodom to be condemned. Right here, Genesis 13, they're already condemned. So, I mean, we could just even get rid of this whole chapter in Genesis 19 to know that they're already condemned. What were they condemned for? Well, we don't really know specifically, at least here in this chapter 13. But they were condemned there. But what do we know about God? God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquities. And so God always gives people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and turn from their sins, which he did here for the people of Sodom. Then Genesis 18 comes along, and kind of God's like, okay, I've had enough, and he's going to punish the wicked, the city. And um, in uh, and, and this is then, you know, he decides to tell Abraham, and Abraham then begins debating with God. You know, he's pretty bold there. Begins, begins debating with God because he knows his nephew is there, and he wants to save his nephew. So he's thinking, well, how about 50 righteous people? You know, will you destroy the city because of these 50 righteous people? And God's like, fine, I'm not going to destroy it. And then Abraham, probably being pretty smart, realizes 50 is a lot of people. <laughs> How about 45? Oh, 45 is a lot. How about 40? You know, he keeps going 30, 20, 10. Finally, 10. God's like, okay, fine. If I find 10 righteous people, I'm not going to destroy the city. Sends two angels goes there, can't even find two righteous people, and he destroys the city. So what's the moral of the story? Well, before we do that, let's go into the like what passed Genesis 19 and look at what other biblical writers have said about this. Particularly when we go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Peter says, If by burning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Jude, verse 7, says something very similar. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursues unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So therefore, when we read this in light of the context from before and the context after, we realize that Sodom is actually a symbol of God's just wrath. Many of us don't like to talk about God's wrath because that's scary, that sounds bad, but that's part of his character and is always just. God is always justified in punishing the wicked. And Sodom is, 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 is often just an example of that, what God is going to do to the wicked. So what exactly is the sin? Now, honestly, if all we had was Genesis 19 and we didn't have any of the other passages which we're going to talk about, there might be uh, not as much clarity. However, we have all these. That's why it's important to read things canonically. We have more than Genesis 19, but if that's all we had, we may, might not have as much clarity on, on to what precisely is the sin. But most likely, it's not just one sin. It's many, many, many sins. It's a plethora of sins. So were they guilty of gang rape? Yes, most likely. Were they guilty of inhospitality? Yes, most likely. Were they guilty of homosexuality? Yes, most likely. How can we, though, say that they were also guilty of inhospitality? This is where context is really important. You know that passage that I mentioned in Ezekiel? This was the sin of your sister Sodom. That's almost always mentioned. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. And it mentions, you know, she was arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. Well, you know, if you just go one verse later, like, I mean, you don't even have to turn the page. You just, one verse later, it says this. They were haughty and did an, abom- did an abomination before me. Here's an example of an illusion. Ezekiel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was alluding back to... 
and referring to Sodom, but he was alluding back to the Torah, specifically Leviticus. In Leviticus 18, 22, and 2013, we find that word abomination. Abomination is a word that we find elsewhere in the Bible, actually several times. Uh, we find it a lot in Ezekiel. Ezekiel liked this word, or he used it a lot. Uh, also, we find it a lot in Leviticus. We find uh, it's kind of just saturated that we have these words. But as you look through and study these words, majority of the times, Ezekiel and Moses in Leviticus use this word in the plural. Don't do as the nations do. You know, they did all these abominations, plural. Every once in a while, Ezekiel and Moses will use it in the singular to be very, very specific. And Moses and Leviticus use it in the singular specifically to refer to when a male lies with a male. It is an abomination. They have done or committed an abomination. Not only just the word is in the singular, but also Ezekiel uses the same verb that we find in Leviticus, did an abomination. Very significant to refer back to. And it's even more telling because we never have gang rape, gang rape called an abomination. We never have in hospitality called an, an abomination. In addition, when we look at um, you know, that assertion about to know, does that have a sexual connotation or not? Well, how do we know what's the definition of the word? Every word has multiple definitions. Do we take just the one that is used most often, or do we use context? Of course, we use context. And does context help us in understanding? Because, for example, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we have where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve. That's all we had. We wouldn't really know. It could be, hi, my name's Adam, my name's Eve, let's hang out. We don't know. Well, Following, in the second half of that verse, it says, she, Eve, became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. So, obviously, there's a sexual connotation. You know, it's not, hi, my name's Adam, my name's Eve. Oops, I'm sorry, you're pregnant. You know, there's more that happened there. And if you believe that, let's talk after. Do we have that, you know, something in context that, that helps us Understand that there's a clear sexual connotation. We do. Just a few verses later, three verses later, in Genesis 19, 8, Lot says, my daughters have never known a man. Well, it's the same verb, you know, that's used just a few verses later. You know, it's, it's highly unlikely that they have completely different meanings. So is it possible that Lot's daughters never New men before, like they've never met a man before. They didn't know intellectually what a man looked like. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they're homeschooled, but most likely, <laughs> most likely they met men. They knew men. They just never had sex with men before. They were virgins. Um, and so it's, it's so clearly from context that, um, that there's a sexual connotation. I mean, honestly, Genesis 19 and this whole narrative is oozing with sexual immorality. If you go after, after Sodom was destroyed, what happens? Um, Lot's wife turns around, turns into a pillar of salt. So who's left? Just Lot and his two daughters. They were supposed to go off to the small city, Zoar, but in, Lot was scared, so he went off and hid in, in some caves. And so while they were living in these caves, the daughters were, were like, well, there's no men around, and how are we going to have children? You guys remember this passage? If you do, we should be kind of cringing. Lot's daughters, uh, both of them, one by one, the older one first, and the younger got the father drunk, and then the younger daughter got the father drunk. Tell me, how in the world could virgin daughters do such a thing if they weren't surrounded previously with such sexual immorality. It's so clear from this text, uh, and especially uh, Hebrew narratives, they don't tell you, they show you, and they're showing us. It's pretty clear. Let's move on to Leviticus, because as we see, um, Ezekiel, the prophet, is linking the sin of Sodom with the sin found in Leviticus. So what's the sin in Leviticus? We're going to look at that. Leviticus, if you just flip forward... Just a few uh, pages, Leviticus chapter 18, 
Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20.13. So Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. Uh, Leviticus 18.22 is you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Singular. 20.13 says if there's a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed or did an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. So these two are parallel passages. 20.13 adds the, the death penalty. Um, and what we find is that, um, what, you know, this is obviously the, the, the most, uh, you know, difficult passage for us to, to go through, uh, you know, or for the difficult passage for revisionists to get around and explain what's actually going on here. Um, and when we look at this passage, uh, how do revisionists Get around that. I mean, man lying with a male, that's wrong. That's bad. What revisions will try to do is they will say, they'll try to bring in some historic, uh, some literary context. Because in chapter 18, verse 21, if you look, it says, uh, do not sacrifice your child to Molech. What's Molech? Molech was an idol. And uh, they would go into these idol temples and they would sacrifice their newborn babies as a way to appease the god of Molech. Well, in other idol temples, they would also do other crazy things where they would actually go there to have sex. I mean, it was basically like a religious brothel. Men would go there and they would kind of, uh, they call them, you know, for, you know, fertility rites. In a sense, you would go there to have sex and that was worship. Uh, most of the time, the, the, the people that were working in those temples were women. But every once in a while, you would have men working in those temples. So those were uh, male temple prostitutes. So revisionists say that's what's being condemned here. Even though there's nothing in the text, they will try to look at the preceding verse and say, well, the preceding verse is talking about idolatry, so therefore 1822 is also talking about idolatry. In other words, monogamous gay sex is okay, monogamous gay relationships are okay, but not the idolatrous form, not when you have uh, you know, sex with a male temple prostitute, an, you know, an idol, a pagan male temple prostitute. Or they will look at that word abomination and say that word abomination doesn't always refer to immorality. It sometimes refers to uncleanness or impurity because, don't you know, shellfish is an abomination. So every time you eat clam chowder, you're eating an abomination. Shrimp, lobster, abomination. And if you don't think that that is an abomination and you still think homosexuality is an abomination, revisionists will say you are a hypocrite. See how it's important for us to understand the Old Testament and why, what's the difference between Old Testament passages that still apply to us today and what don't? Sometimes people also look at all these passages uh, or, or a bunch of chapters in Leviticus, Leviticus chapters uh, 17 through 26, which are known as the Holiness Code, where God is saying, you are going to be set apart from these other nations. Actually, holiness or holy in, uh, you know, in biblical Terminology means being, being set apart. You've probably heard that before. So, uh, you know, God was commanding Israel to be set apart from all these pagan nations and gives all these rules that to us seem kind of, kind of crazy, kind of ridiculous. For example, a man, uh, in ancient Israel was, he was not supposed to touch his wife during that time of month or be sexually intimate during that time of month. Also, you weren't supposed to uh, mate different animals. You weren't supposed to uh, mix seed in the field. You weren't supposed to mix fabric in your clothing. You're, no, you're not supposed to cut the sides of your hair. So all these things. I mean, people look at these rules and we're like, these are kind of just crazy rules. We don't follow those anymore. If you don't follow those anymore, if you, if you cut the sides, you know, the edges of your hair, but you still believe that same-sex relationships are sinful, you know, well, then you're being a hypocrite. How do we respond to these? Well, let's kind of start at the top. Uh, is there any merit to this assertion that this is only referring to idolatry? It's not, it's not just referring to, you know, it's not referring to a universal condemnation against same-sex relationships. Well, 
One thing is that there's a very specific word to refer to the male temple prostitute. It's the Hebrew word kedeshim. We find that in Deuteronomy. We find that in Job. Moses didn't use that word here. And from the context, we don't find where, you know, where there's this narrowing scope of, you know, universal condemnations. For example, in Leviticus 18, Moses is condemning incest. He's not just condemning certain forms of incest. He's condemning all forms of incest. And in 1821, where it says, don't sacrifice your child to Molech, is that okay when it's not idolatrous? Like, is it okay, parents, for you to kill your children as long as you're not doing it to Molech? I mean, parents, I know at times you want to kill your children, but it's always wrong. I mean, don't do that. Um, how about that word abomination? It's the Hebrew word toavah. Does that refer to immorality or does it refer to uncleanness? Well, I mean, we need to look at context, particularly in Proverbs 6. We find where it says pride is an abomination. Dissension is an abomination. No one would call those unclean things. And how do we know, uh, you know, and even the word to refer to shellfish or unclean foods, when we find in Leviticus, it uses a different Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word is not as strong as toavah. It's the Hebrew word shakes. That in itself isn't enough, but that does help us to understand a bit. But how do we know that we're able to eat unclean foods today? I mean, why can we eat clam? Why can we eat shrimp? Why can we eat shellfish? Why can we eat pork? By the way, can we just have an amen for bacon? Amen. Amen. <laughs> you know, bacon. But according to Leviticus, we're not supposed to eat it. It's unclean. Why are we able to do that? So this gets to, remember the very beginning I said, Old Testament passage, what does it mean? What does it say? That second part is very important. I'm just going to give kind of partial answers because we could have, you know, a whole week talking about that. But how do we know whether a particular, you know, passage or, or a law in the Old Testament does not apply to us anymore? The New Testament. Acts chapter 10, for example. Peter gets that vision where a white sheet drops down from heaven. And on that white sheet are what? Unclean animals. So, I mean, all these unclean foods, and, uh, you know, the voice from heaven says, take and eat, you know, but Peter's like, I've, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. So I, like, I'm imagining like a big Chinese buffet. You know what I mean? Like all unclean foods. He doesn't like Chinese food, obviously. <laughs> then the voice from heaven says, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. So what's going on here? I mean, yes, at the surface level, now all the unclean laws are, you know, have been cleaned so we can eat unclean foods and we can have bacon. Amen. But it's actually much broader than that. The actually bigger meaning is that because of that Jesus, he hasn't abolished these laws. He's fulfilled them. But because Jesus has fulfilled these laws, now the Gentiles, which should be all of us, unless you're Jewish, unless, you know, that, that all of us now that are unclean can now enter into the presence of God, can now enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's a huge amen. That's all of us. So because of the New Testament that helps inform us about these Old Testament laws, and even it's not just this one passage Paul says in Romans 14, verse 20, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 15, it's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of a mouth. But how do we know then to distinguish between, well, this is an unclean law, or this is a, you know, yeah, unclean law, and this is more of a moral law. Look at the penalty. When you look at the the, the, the penalty for a man touching his wife during that time of month, what's the penalty there? He'd be unclean for seven days. Cast out of the city. After seven days, he can enter back to the city after a process of cleansing and then be back to normal. What's the penalty for mixing seed in your field? You would throw out your crop. What's the penalty for having a garment that has mixed fabric? You would throw out your garment. What's the penalty for... Eating unclean foods, like if you had, you know, had a craving for shrimp, you'd be unclean until evening. So you had a late night snack, it could be worthwhile. You know, you've got to weigh your options. <laughs> so what's the penalty then for same-sex relationship for homosexuality? Death. I know that sounds really radical. 
Because most people will then say, well, you're saying you need to put gays and lesbians to death. No, because punishment belongs to the Lord. But I am going to say something radical. I do believe that the death penalty still stands for the sin. You know why? Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. So it doesn't matter whether you just lied or cheated or were jealous. We all deserve death. And that is why we today still need a savior. 2,000 years ago, they needed a savior. Today, we still need a savior. Um, David and Jonathan, how many of you guys knew that they were lovers? Look at these passages. Their love's more wonderful than of women. They became one. They became one spirit. Jonathan took off his robe. They kissed and they wept. Don't we live in a hypersexualized world? I mean, why is it that two men, they say they love each other and people just jump to the conclusion that they're gay? Actually, as a matter of fact, men, those of you that are married, you should actually have love that's more wonderful than that of your wife. That should be your love for God. There's nothing sexual about that. Love does not equal sex. Love does not equal romance. The world equates love with sex and equates love with romance. And, um, you know, notice that though they became one, they didn't become one flesh. They became one spirit. That's a huge difference. We only have that occurring one other time in, in the whole Old Testament uh, where two people go, their souls were knit together, and it was when... Judah was talking about his father, Jacob, and said that Jacob, his father's soul, was knit together to Benjamin's soul, to Benjamin's spirit. Nothing sexual about that. As a matter of fact, this is more of a kinship, uh, talking about you know, their, their love for one another in that way. Nothing sexual about that. And let's just be honest. David's issue was not men. I mean, seriously. You know, if you know anything about David, you know, think about his life. David, his issue, he had, his issue was too many women, right? I mean, if he really was gay and he was on that rooftop on that faithful night and he happened to look upon Bathsheba bathing, if he was gay, he would not say, she's hot, I want to have sex with her. Maybe he would say, who's her decorator, I love her robe, but not, I want to have sex with her. You know, I mean, it's so outside the realm of possibility. So let's look at this concept of slavery. Oftentimes people say the Bible has condoned slavery, slavery is wrong, so therefore the Bible is wrong, and so therefore the Bible is also wrong on same-sex relationships. What we need to realize is that the Bible's understanding of slavery is not exactly the same concept of modern slavery. Modern slavery, as we understand it today, was not voluntary. Did they have involuntary slavery back then? Of course they did. But they also, it also involved voluntary slavery. So the word in Greek, doulos, can also mean bond servant. In a sense, bond servants were treated well. They were, had, they had rights. They could buy themselves out of slavery. They had freedoms. Um, and, you know, but in a sense, they kind of belonged to their owner or the, the Lord. Closest modern concept that we have today is the military. I was in the Marine Corps and I belonged to who? Anyone know? Uncle Sam. That doesn't mean that 24 hours a day. And I mean, I volunteered into service. During, you know, those five years that I was in service, I belonged to Uncle Sam. I still had freedom. They paid me. That's a pretty close equivalent to um, some forms of slavery in, in ancient times. It was all like that? No, because there was, a, there was also a lot of bad form of involuntary slavery. However, what we need to realize is actually slavery and then was their kind of welfare system or was their safety net to, to, take, to take care of people that fell upon bad times. And actually, the Bible is critical against involuntary slavery and specifically slave trade. In Exodus twenty one sixteen. It actually gives the death penalty for slavery, selling people. Unfortunately, some translations don't get this correct. Some translations use the word kidnap, when actually it should be, uh, if anyone sells another and still has them, they shall be put to death. I just wonder if we actually got that Bible verse correct and translated correctly, we would have changed Western history for the better. But unfortunately, uh, we, we didn't. That's why... Uh, biblical languages are so important, and actually uh, good translations are so important as well. Um, let's go on to the New Testament. Jesus was silent. Now, we need to realize 
Silence is never an argument for or against. I think we talked about this at, at dinner time. I mean, it's, it, it, it can be part of your argument, but you can't just, that's your only argument. Because if that's our only argument, you know what we could all, also argue before? We could also say that Jesus is okay about bestiality. Read all four Gospels. Jesus never mentioned anything about bestiality. Does that mean that he was okay with it? He also ne- never mentioned anything about incest. Does that mean he's okay with it? And if we can come up with a reason why Jesus was silent, that can help us understand. Why would Jesus be silent about bestiality? Because in first century Israel, no Jew questioned the morality of bestiality. No one did. Same thing incest. No first century Hellenistic Jew questioned the immorality of incest in the same way. No first century Jew questioned the immorality of a same-sex relationship. You read all the rabbinic literature around that time, around those few centuries, not one thought positively about. So therefore, Jesus didn't need to reiterate it. It was universally condemned, and so he didn't need to correct that. But let's just say, for argument's sake, that he didn't think it was sinful. I think he would have corrected it as he did, as he corrected the extra, you know, traditions around Sabbath. Jesus, though he may have been silent specifically on homosexuality, you know what he was not silent on? He was not silent about sexuality, and he was not silent about marriage. In Matthew 19 and Mark 10, those are probably, outside of these passages that are condemning same-sex relationships, those are probably the two most important passages that we need to know when it comes to sexuality. Mark 10 and Matthew 19. This is where Jesus is asked by the Pharisees about divorce. And Jesus, instead of just saying, no divorce is wrong, no divorce is bad, he could have picked a lot of passages in the Old Testament to say why divorce is wrong. He didn't do that. He stepped back and gave them this rich theology of marriage. And what's more important is that Jesus could have simply just given him Genesis 2. He could have just simply said, the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, I mean, that, that, that would have answered the whole question on divorce, but he didn't. You know what he says? He goes back to not only Genesis 2, but he goes even back further to Genesis 1.27, where he says, in the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Why, why did he have to talk about male and female when he's talking about divorce? Because the male and female complementary nature of marriage is essential to marriage. If you don't have the male and female aspect of marriage, you have no marriage. It's core to marriage. And not only that, but it's core to the image of God. It, I mean, if you study Genesis, flip back there if you have. Genesis 1, it's, it's really amazing. You have all this kind of narrative text, and it's paragraph, 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 paragraph. And then what do you find? It's, it's the only thing in Genesis all 1 that's sectioned off. Do you see that? Genesis 1, it's just text, 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 paragraph, paragraph. You know, you know day 1, day 2, day 3, God, God said and made this and that. And then all of a sudden, Genesis one twenty seven, we get this. It's, it's poetry. It's three lines of poetry. And this is parallelism at its best. God, so God created man in his own image. So we have subject, verb, object, and then prepositional phrase. And then what we find in line two is he flips it. He puts prepositional phrase first and then subject, verb, object. God, he created them. And then, get this, this third line is what's, what's, what's really, really interesting. Instead, he takes the, in, uh, the prepositional phrase out in the image of God and he places with male and female he created them. So it's basically he created him in second line. He created them, which is the same thing. He created him is referring to he created humanity. He created them is specifically male and female. But what we find is because of this parallel, parallelism, we see that actually male and female is not only essential to marriage, but it's also essential to the image of God. So anything, this is why it's so important. Jesus is connecting marriage not only to the fact that it's male and female, but he's connected to the very image of God. So as a matter of fact, any distortion of marriage distorts the image of God. That's why this teaching of marriage is so important. We're not just kind of making peripheral issues 
you know, primary issues. This is a pretty primary issue for uh, Jesus himself. Um, Romans 1. This passage is where Paul says uh, God handed them over to shameful lusts. Um, then God had natural relations with un- uh, let me see if we go. Because of this, God handed them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. This is the only passage that touches on uh, women and women's sexual relationships. In the same way, men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. So this is the, conf- the debate here is about what is Paul talking about when he says natural and unnatural. What, what is he referring to? Traditionally, we will say natural is between man and woman. Unnatural is between man and man, woman and woman. The argument is uh, that word unnatural doesn't refer to man and man, woman and woman. It refers to what's natural according to the individual. So in other words, if a person who's heterosexual has homosexual sex, that's unnatural to him. So in other words, religious say or assert that Paul isn't condemning people who are gay, which, by the way, those terms, I, I'm, I don't, just this concept of this is who we are is, of course, something that I reject, and I, and I talked about that yesterday, uh, but that's how revisions they'll talk. Uh, they'll say, you know, people who are a certain way and they, and they act the way that that's natural to them, that's okay. And, and that sounds so bizarre, uh, but that's actually probably one of the most popular ways of understanding this passage. How, I mean, how then, is there any merit to us understanding that it goes deeper than that? Uh, hopefully I have this passage. Yes, I do. Um, so what we find in Romans 1, and this is probably the best example of intertextuality. I mean, it, it'll just blow your mind. Um, Paul in Romans 1, so if we follow the argument, Paul is basically setting up and just saying, Y'all are condemned. All of you. I mean, none of you have excuse. Um, God, and, and this is not like a formula that, you know, a person, individual turns to idols and then he turns gay. That's, that's probably the worst. I mean, that's, that is a big misunderstanding that people think, well, like a, a person who's gay will say, well, I never turned to idols. So, so that's why this passage must be wrong. Paul isn't just saying this is how individuals turn away from God. He's saying that all of humanity has turned from God. And an example is idolatry. An example is uh, homosexuality. Um, but what Paul is also doing is he's actually then referring back to Genesis. And look at these passages. This is, this is pretty cool. Um, I'm going to use Drew's you know, little nifty thing. Look at this. Look at that. Isn't that cool? Oh, there we go. Look at that. Anyway, okay. <laughs> so um, what you find here uh, in Genesis and uh, Romans 1, you'll find this over and over. Actually, it's eight different times just within just one, Genesis 1, 26 through 27 and, and Romans 1, 23 uh, and then 26, 27. Over and over and over, Paul is alluding back. He's, he doesn't have to quote an entire passage. He's alluding back. And I know you might be thinking, wait, isn't the Old Testament in Hebrew? You're right, it is. Couple hundred years prior to the coming of Jesus, around 300 uh, BC, uh, the Old Testament, Hebrew Old Testament, was translated into the Greek Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And actually, the biblical writers of the New Testament, they mostly quoted from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. So Paul was basically quoting, taking exact words over and over and over and over. What's his point? Why was Paul doing that? Because Paul is making a point that natural and unnatural, the argument that he's making is that that we were created from, you know, from creation. We were created in a way for a purpose, and that is what is natural. Not just kind of natural according to just kind of general, you know, general revelation or just natural loss or this concept, you know, that was a Greek philosophical concept, but nature according to God's created order. And going against that, going against God created order, especially male and female, is not natural. It's, it's almost, I mean, if you look at this, it's like, you, it's, it's undeniable in the way that you have this over and over and over. Um, in addition, we have other biblical writers around the time of Paul that use this concept, natural and unnatural, to refer to 
opposite sex sexual relationships and same sex sexual relationships. Okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6 um, and 1 Timothy 1. I'm going way over, I'm sorry. Um, so the, the, this is going through a list of sins, and there's one g- Greek word that we're going to focus on, and it's a compound word, and it's a Greek word, arsenikoitai. This compound word is not found before the New Testament was written. So that, that then poses us a problem because we don't know what it means. If this is the first time that this word occurs, there's a bit of difficulty in, in, in kind of figuring out the meaning of this word. We don't find it before the New Testament was written. So revisionists say, well, it doesn't refer to homosexual relationships, you know, same-sex relationships. Of course, they're going to say that. They will say it refers to the more common form that we find in the, ancient, in the Greco-Roman world, which was pedophilia. Now, just a note on pedophilia. Pedophilia, uh, and, and, and especially the, the, what we found, find in the Greco-Roman world, is not exactly what we think of today. When we think of pedophilia, we think about a grown person, a grown man, uh, having sex with little, ki- with little kids. Back then, what was actually more allowed was um, teenagers. Uh, actually, women would get married from 12 years old on up. That was normal. Um, and so what these older men, and when we say older, maybe they're in their you know, 30s, they would then, you know, have younger men who were probably teenagers, um, uh, and that's what was going on. Not necessarily just, you know, actual little kids. Yes, they had that then, but but more more uh, common was this kind of teenager with maybe more an adult male. But anyway, that's what revisions will say. Um, is there, you know, is that a legitimate interpretation? This is, again, where we need to read things canonically. Look at, look at where this biblical writer might be alluding back to something else. So that word, arsenikoitai, if we break it down, we find these two words, the Greek words arsene and the Greek word koite. Arsene means male, koite means bed or lying down. In other words, when a, you know, when a man lies or beds with a male, it is an abomination. We get that right from Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. So do you remember at the very, very beginning when I said two things we need to know about an Old Testament passage? What does it mean and does it apply to us today? Well, we kind of gave a kind of a partial answer to when it doesn't apply to us. Well, how do we know that an Old Testament passage definitely applies to us today? When a New Testament author repeats it. And we get that not only once in 1 Corinthians 6, but we get that twice in 1 Timothy 1. Paul is going back to Leviticus and pulling that forward and saying, this still applies to us today. When a man lies a male, what's said in Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, that still applies to us today. Uh, we get those two words, arsen and koite, separately uh, six times in the Old Testament, and every time it means when a person lies with a man. But I love ending with this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, such were some of you. That's the good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we praise you that in all things you reign. Uh, God, help us uh, to not just be hearers, but doers of your word. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.